Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. Thank you for your grace to us this day and this week. And we're, we're thankful that um, none of our friends we've heard about have gotten the virus so far. And we're thankful for that. We pray you'll keep us safe in the days ahead. And we appreciate the work of those who are, who are working hard day and night to come up with a solution uh, to alleviate the problem and a vaccine. Pray you'll keep our church safe and enable us to continue to minister in this limited fashion. We wish we could be back fully and pray that that'll be soon. Pray you'll continue to bless all of our brothers and sisters in Christ here in our church. And thank you for this time together as we seek to learn and improve our understanding of some of these issues that may help us in interpreting the Bible and understanding it better, having a greater understanding of the context and other matters that relate to the New Testament, especially. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we are looking at uh, week eight of our uh, study. And uh, let's see, let me put that up. And uh, we have covered uh, the history of the intertestamental period pretty thoroughly. We're looking now at uh, what I call the parties or Jewish diversity. And I've decided to, as some do, to uh, sort of separate that into two broad categories of Samaritans who ultimately are descended from uh, the northern tribes. They, they, they are descended from the 10 tribes who were taken captivity, not the ones taken captivity, the ones that people left, Jewish people who were left in the northern kingdom when the Assyrians uh, captured the northern 10 tribes and they brought people in, you remember, and intermarried. They intermarried with the Jews there and became the Samaritans. And they claimed to, you know, hold the Old Testament to the Torah and so forth, as we talked about. But there are various Jewish sects, uh, down through history. Uh, not won't talk about all of them, but the major ones, we talked about the Sadducees and the Pharisees last time. These are the two major ones in the New Testament. Um, very, very important. And we saw how they developed back in that intertestamental period, back during the period of the Maccabees and the Hasmonean uh, dynasty, uh, Back, actually back in the early Maccabean, the period of Jonathan, the third uh, ruler. And uh, tonight we want to continue that, and we want to talk about the Essenes. Now, as I say, the Essenes are not mentioned by name in the New Testament, but are known from the writings of Josephus and others. So we talked about Josephus quite a bit last time, the, the Jewish um, writer, soldier, sort of statesman, traitor to his nation in a sense, uh, because first he, remember, was on the side of defeating the Romans, and then when he was captured, he, he turned uh, over, he joined the Romans. And uh, after he went to Rome, after the defeat of Israel, uh, defeat of the Jews, he, he wrote about these in various works, the Antiquities of the Jews, the Jewish War, other works. So a very important uh, writer, first century writer in the time of Jesus and Paul. And others talk about this, uh, other Christian writers especially, and even uh, just Roman secular writers mentioned the Essenes. The meaning of the term is not perfectly clear uh, what, what that exactly means. Uh, the Qumran documents, Now I'm gonna use that term Qumran quite a bit, uh, most in popular uh, discussions, we hear the na name Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the location where they were discovered is an Arabic name, Kirbet Qumran. And so Qumran is often the name that you'll see in a lot of literature if you read on this, the Qumran Scrolls, the Qumran Library, Qumran. That's the location of the scrolls. So these documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran documents, 
They never used the word Essene either, actually, but most scholars identify them with the monastic community at Qumran that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, first discovered in 1947. Now, there's a lot in that. Uh, I call them, they're a monastic community, and uh, that's a common term that's used. I'll talk about that later because we're going to talk about, excuse me, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, we're going to have a do a discussion of those particularly because that's part of the literature here of the uh, intertestamental period is the Dead Sea Scrolls. But apparently the Essenes uh, were, were strictly a male community. Uh, they didn't marry. They, they perpetuated themselves by taking in new converts and uh, they didn't actually marry. So, it's, so monasticism is something that actually comes out of Christianity centuries after this, a few hundred years after this, but that's a term that's often applied to them because it's a male-only sort of religious uh, group. So they're first mentioned by Josephus along with the Pharisees and Sadducees, as I said, during the time of Jonathan. Now remember the Maccabean revolt happens in 167 BC, Mattathias, this uh, Jewish a priest who kills the uh, Syrian agent. Remember the Jews had been ordered to set up uh, uh, altars to sacrifice to pagan gods. And so Mattathias and his five sons, his first son was Judas, um, who took over in 166 and lasted to 160. Then he was killed. And then Jonathan, 160 to 143. And that's when Josephus and others mention, that's when Josephus, I should say, mentions the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they're at least around at that time and the Essenes are too. We think the Essenes like the Pharisees probably had their origins with the Hasidim. Remember Hasidim is a Hebrew term that means uh, pure ones, righteous ones, pure holy ones. The I-M ending in Hebrew is a plural ending. So like we, we put an S on a word to make something plural. In Hebrew, one of the masculine endings is, an, one of the endings is an I-M. Hasadim is plural for these holy ones or pure ones. And so uh, we think that Pharisees come out of this group. Remember when the Maccabees revolted in 167, there was a large number of Jews who were unhappy with the forced Hellenization. Remember that the Seleucids, Antiochus IV especially, when he tried to eliminate Judaism, uh, made pagan sacrifices at the temple, uh, uh, stopped people from being circumcised, parents from circumcising their boys. And so he tried just to be burned copies of the door, all kinds of terrible things. And so there was a group of Jews who, who opposed. Now, remember we talked about that was one of the things that happened during this period. There were Jews who went along with this secularization or culture, a pagan culture, and were okay with sort of combining Judaism with that. And, um, but these Hasidim weren't. And the Pharisees seemed to come out of that, the Essenes too. They, they could have come out of the Hasidim, or they may be a split off the Pharisees. There's a lot of similarity as you study the literature from Qumran. They numbered, according to what we know, about 4,000, and these were separatist kind of people. That's why we talked about a monastic community. They left the cities of Palestine and lived in towns and villages west of the Dead Sea. That's where Qumran is as we'll see, and they lived in a communal lifestyle and sought to refrain from marriage. Um, so there's Qumran, uh, right on the edge of the Dead Sea. And uh, this is a very desolate, <laughs> very difficult place to get to. It's, you can get to it today because there's a road but uh, you couldn't get to it very well back then. Here's a picture I'll show you, some preliminary pictures. I'll show you some more details when we get to the Dead Sea Scrolls. But 
This is a picture of the Dead Sea and we're looking north, actually east. So, um, yeah, well, I didn't do that again, did I? Sorry about this. I got to go back and <laughs> I, I can never remember to uh, change that pointer over to um, change that cursor over to something we can see here. Okay, we'll get back here. So this is north right here. So we're looking sort of northeast, north of the Dead Sea, south of the Dead Sea down here. And uh, here is another view. And here's Qumran. Uh, remember, that's that Arabic name. And uh, so they're right on the edge. Now, there's a road there now, but there was no road, you know, back in ancient times, as far as you know. It's very difficult place to get to. You can see the, the cliffs here. You're right on the edge of the Dead Sea. It, it, you know, there was no road down here. So, you know, it, it's really sort of protected. You, it's very difficult to get to. You're out of the way and no one's going to be bothering you too much uh, if you're in that place. Um, this is the Wadi Qumran here. The, they have this name Wadi in Israel and other places there for these are just kind of creeks are little like rivers that are only they only have water in them during the spring fall you know in the, in the fall rains and so this is very desert area here but during the rainy season you'll see some green stuff grow up but the water runs down through here and so there's not much water there for sure uh, and this is the, the, the name of the area. And so here today, there's a whole visitor center here that we'll, you know, we'll see, but this is where they lived at around this area here, these caves we'll talk about and so forth. Um, this is Qumran. Um, so um, these people who left the towns of Palestine and came out here to live in the desert, they were disenchanted with the temple establishment of their day. Uh, the temple was controlled by the Sadducees. They were very uh, open to some Hellenization, to going along with the Romans. They, you know, and so people like the Pharisees were very upset about that, though they didn't leave uh, the cities of Palestine but the Essenes did. And so they went out to establish a pure worship of the Lord that they talk about. And so they were devoted to a very strict interpretation of the law. They were devoted to personal purity. Um, and they were very uh, eschatological. Remember that word eschatology means future things. Eschatos is future. And so uh, Dr. Snowberger is teaching right now on Thursday night, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. The next one next semester is going to be the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. And the last one he'll teach, which would be Lord willing, next fall will be eschatology. That is prophecy or future things. Well, these people were really devoted to that. They they looked at the Old Testament and they saw, much like a lot of modern prophecy preachers have done, you know, uh, they looked at the Old Testament and they saw fulfillments in their time. They believed they were living in the last days, right before the Lord comes. And they saw in the events around them a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. They were mostly wrong about that, but that, that's what they... That's how they viewed things. Uh, let's look at the zealots. Uh, religiously, the zealots were in agreement uh, with the Pharisees. However, they added a violent revolutionary nationalism to the Pharisees, who seemed to have been somewhat semi-pacifist themselves. The Zealots embraced violence against the Romans as a way of purifying Israel from foreign influence. They sparked the rebellion against Rome that brought the first Jewish war in AD 66, what we talked about. 
there's not too much about them in the New Testament. It doesn't, the, the, in fact, the New Testament doesn't mention the Zealots as a group. We know them through other sources like Josephus and so forth. But one of the Jesus' disciples was apparently a devotee of this particular movement. Uh, his disciple called Simon the Zealot. It's a little bit of confusing about what his name is and what his name means, especially if we're used to the King James. Uh, if you look at the NIV, if you look at modern translations, ESV and others, they uh, mention in the four instances, they use the word zealot, Simon the zealot, uh, Mark 3.18, Simon the zealot, Luke, Simon is called the zealot in Acts. So these are lists of the apostles. And uh, in each case, NIV says Simon the zealot. Now, actually, there's two Greek words used here. It's not exactly zealot in each case. In Mark 10.4 and Mark 3.18, it's, uh, it's a Greek word, kanonios, kanonios. And if you look at the King James, they have, this is where the confusion kind of comes in. They have Simon the Canaanite in Matthew 10.4 and Mark 3.18, Simon the Canaanite. And then in Luke 6, 15, actually they have Simon called Zelotes, Zelotes. So uh, there are two different Greek words here. The first two instances have this word kainanios. Now that word is not Canaanite. That's kind of a misunderstanding, I think, of the King James. Well, at least as we understand what a Canaanite is, we think about the Old Testament Canaanites. This has nothing to do with the Kananias, has nothing to do with the Old Testament Canaanites or anybody from Cana of Galilee. This is the Greek spelling of the Aramaic word for zealot. <laughs> so he's called Simon the Kananias, which is just Simon the zealot. So you can see why the NIV and ESV and other modern translations, they just translated zealot all the way through because it's really the Greek form of the Aramaic for zealot. And then in Luke 6, 15 and Acts 1, 13, Acts 1, 13 the K King James just has put the Greek word into English letters. The Greek word is zelotes, which is the Greek word for zealot. They just put zelotes there. So Simon the zealot. So that's all we know about the zealots as far as the New Testament is concerned is that seems clear that one of Jesus' apostles was at least formally, you know, a part of this revolutionary group seeking to overthrow um, Rome and drive them from Palestine. Let's mention uh, the last group here, the Herodians. Um, I say nothing is known really about the Herodians uh, except that judging from their name, they were members of the household of the Herods. Now that's, that's a lot of people because the Herodian dynasty, Herod had 10 wives, you remember himself, <laughs> and, uh, and children and so forth. So you've got members of that household or supporters of the dynasty. Uh, so these were people who were uh, supporters of Herod and indirectly the rule of Rome. So they were on the side of the Romans. Um, and they joined the Pharisees in their opposition to Jesus, even though religiously they were inclined to the Sadducees. As far as we know, they, they, what we know is they, uh, they really were not opposed to this. They were opposed to the strict interpretation of the law of the Pharisees. They were more like the Sadducees, but, you know, the enemy of your enemy is my enemy kind of thing. And so, you know, a couple of verses speak of the Pharisees went out to begin a, and began to plot with the Herodians. So the Pharisees had their reasons for getting rid of Jesus and the Herodians did too. The same thing in Mark 12, 13. Some of the Pharisees and the Herodians just uh, tried to catch Jesus, catch him in his words. So though they weren't joined uh, politically or religiously necessarily that close, they did plot together to try to get rid of Jesus. 
All right, that brings us to the end of our study of the parties. Now we wanna talk about cultural and religious developments. The last thing we'll talk about Roman numeral five is the literature uh, of this period. And we'll be talking about the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha when we get to that particular point. Okay, the first thing we wanna talk about, and we've alluded to this uh, somewhat, is the diaspora. Uh, this word diaspora comes from the Greek word for scatter. So we're talking about the diaspora, or we could put that in English, the dispersion, the dispersion, the diaspora. So it's a technical term, it is a word uh, for this technical scattering of the Jews. It refers to the scattering of Jews throughout the world, initially through exile, and later through immigration as well. Remember, there's a difference between um, immigration with an I and immigration with an E. Immigration with an E speaks of someone who leaves their country and goes to another. So if, if I were to move to Canada, I would be an immigrant, I would be immigrating, E-M. <laughs> immigrating to China. So we're talking about the moving of Jews leaving their homeland uh, because of exile, <clears throat> first of all, but then just not forcibly, but willing immigration, just leaving to go to outside of the land. And so ultimately more Jews lived in the diaspora than in the Holy Land during the New Testament period. Um, and that's true today, you know, what are there, 6 million people in Israel and, you know, there's more Jews outside of, uh, Israel than there is in Israel. Uh, the dispersion of Jews from Palestine occurred in several stages that we've talked about. The first great dispersions took place in 722 BC in the North under the Assyrians. You remember the 10 Northern tribes were taken captive. Uh, and we don't know exactly what happened to those people. We don't have good references or records. We assume they were dispersed in the Middle East and so forth. 586 in the South under the Babylonians. And then we know that under Cyrus, they were permitted to return if they wanted to, but the majority did not return after the exile. And so became colonists, no longer captives of the Persian Empire. Uh, the Persians allowed the, the Jews, as we talked about, to have a pretty good life there. They had sort of like a self-rule. They established themselves in commerce. Some became quite wealthy. They were allowed to uh, advance in the political order. And so many of them uh, stayed in Babylon. Um, Ptolemy I of Egypt took many captives Jews in the captivity to Alexander during his invasion of Palestine. Now we didn't talk much about this uh, when after Alexander the Great, uh, remember divided up his kingdom, we talked about how that the Palestine was uh, fought over by the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies in Egypt, the Seleucids, Syrians, you know, in Syria and further. And the Ptolemies won out originally and they, uh, they, they fought battles in Palestine. We didn't talk much about that or anything, but when they did, they took captives to Alexandria during the invasion of Palestine. Alexandria's importance as a Jewish center dates to this time. So Alexandria from, this, from that time on became a very important center of Judaism and Jewish people. Antiochus III of Syria forced about 2,000 Jewish families to move from Babylon to Phrygia and Lydia in Western Asia Minor. So I'm just mentioning a couple of these forced dispersions, these exiles, these forcible movement of Jewish people. There's one to Egypt. Here's one to this area of uh, Lydia here and Phrygia here. 
So we've talked a little about this area before because uh, this area was called Lydia back in the days of Cyrus the Great and also in the time of the Greeks. Uh, so this area was fought over. Cyrus ultimately conquered the king of Lydia here. This, is, this area is more or less called Asia in the New Testament period. Uh, here's Ephesus here in the province of Asia, as you can see. Phrygia here is this area here. This is kind of part in Asia, part in Galatia. So in the book of Acts, it talks about, it doesn't mention Lydia, but it talks about, uh, well, it talks about a woman named Lydia <laughs> over in Philippi. You remember she was from over here, uh, Lydia from Thyatira. Uh, but Paul, uh, and when, when we get into the book of Acts in Acts 13 and Acts 16, 15, uh, Paul is going into areas of Phrygia, it mentions Phrygia here. This is a, so Phrygia is really a geographical area here we're talking about. And so uh, Jews were forced uh, by Antiochus um, uh, to, uh, to move to, to this area and to this area. So he dispersed Jews from, from various areas. Um, if you can see 1 Peter 1, 1 that I've got up there, <clears throat> it says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered. That word scattered is the diaspora in the diaspora through provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, this area here. And there's some, a lot of debate about this, but some people have thought that Peter is thinking about mainly Jewish Christians who were in this area here. He, he's certainly writing to this area. And the question is, is he writing to Jewish believers or maybe Gentiles, some Gentiles or Jews, but because of that word diaspora there, is it a technical term for the dispersion of the Jews? It's, there's some debate about that, but it's kind of an interesting thing. Well, number two, uh, by the time of Christ, Jews were widely dispersed throughout the cities and countryside of the empire and beyond. From the time of the Babylonian captivity, Jews outside Palestine greatly outnumbered those in the land. In the New Testament times, only 2.5 million Jews lived in Palestine, while 4 to 6 million lived outside of Palestine. The regions of Mesopotamia, Syria, Asia, Minor, and Egypt each had more than 1 million Jewish residents, while Italy and North Africa had about 100,000 Jews. Um, we've seen this map before. Uh, showing the dispersion, sort of where Jews were at the time of Pentecost and so forth. But you can see Jews are all here in Egypt, <clears throat> again, still through Mesopotamia, what was once Babylon, and all in this area of Phrygia and Asia, <clears throat> this area of Galatia that Paul visits, up in Greece and Athens. Everywhere that Paul went, he would find Jews, you know, Italy, here's Rome, so uh, Jews were dispersed pretty much everywhere. Um, most of the Jews here lived around Alexandria. There were Jews all the way down here in Elephantine. I didn't, there's a whole discussion about Elephantine. There were Jews who lived here. And we have letters that they wrote back to the high priest in Jerusalem, but I didn't discuss that. But um, most of them lived around Alexandria here. And they were a large part of the population, 10%, 15%, maybe 20% of the population was of Alexandria was Jewish, just a large uh, group of people here. Number three, most Jews in the dispersion lived in cities where they could pursue a variety of trades and could often find fellow Jews with whom to associate. Jews in much of, the, of Europe would continue to be silly city dwellers for many centuries. In other words, Jews weren't 
particularly in the dispersion farmers. That wasn't their particular trade generally. Jews were represented in nearly every social class. Jewish soldiers served in the armies of the Hellenistic kings, and some of them rose to the highest ranks. Hellenistic rulers found it to their advantage to have communities of Jews in their realms since they usually represented a stabilizing influence. The Jews also frequently made themselves an invaluable part of the business community. The customs of the Jews were widely known if poorly understood. The contrast between the pagan culture in which the diaspora Jews were immersed and their Jewish faith created special challenges for them. Many undoubtedly assimilated their Judaism to the Hellenistic surroundings. So that is a problem. You know, you, you're living outside of Israel. And, you know, the Old Testament is based upon the fact that you have a central sanctuary, the temple. And to be a good Jew, you have to go there. Uh, every male is supposed to present himself in Jerusalem at least three times a year. And so, you know, how do you do that if you live in Corinth or you live in Rome or something like that? Plus, you know, it's hard, it's hard to keep up these purity laws, these, uh, you know, how do you, what do you do? That? Jews had all kinds of things. I mean, they had their own butchers. They butchered their own feed, f food, their own meat, which becomes an issue in the New Testament and so forth. So some of these Jews attempted to remain faithful to their heritage, uh, maintaining, you know, ties to the Holy Land and to the temple. Uh, they sent contributions back. There was a temple tax and these Jews would support that and so forth and make trips. And that's, uh, you know, we see that in Acts chapter two. You remember in Acts chapter two, there's all these Jews there and a lot of them have come in for the Feast of Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter two. So there was a lot of uh, visiting and migration back and forth uh, from the dispersion. Number four, the differences between the Jews from the diaspora and those living in Palestine brought them into conflict, a situation that shows up in the early church. In Acts 6, we read of a dispute between the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews over the care of widows in the church. The Grecian or Hellenistic Jews were those who had returned from the diaspora to Palestine. They spoke only Greek and had adopted many aspects of the Hellenistic culture. The Hebraic Jews spoke mainly Aramaic and preserved traditional Jewish culture. And so you remember that famous passage in Acts chapter 6 where we think of as the beginning of the office of deacon not called deacons technically, though there are a lot of cognate words are used, like you know, the word deacon is diakonos. There's the verb there that to serve and so forth. But you remember that dispute that takes place because in the early church, they were taking care of these widows. And it says the Hellenistic Jews complained that the, their widows were being neglected by these Hebraic Jews. And that's where that difference in language comes in. So Hellenistic and Hebraic is a difference in language and also a difference in culture. So these Jews who were raised outside of Palestine and decided to return, they would know Greek, but they, they would have never, you know, they, they, didn't, they weren't fluent or really knowledgeable in Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, whereas these Hebraic Jews were people who had lived in the land and thought of themselves as uh, observing Judaism more closely and more correctly. And uh, these Hebraic Jews look with suspicion upon the Hellenistic Jews. They, uh, they thought they're not really up, they're not really truly Jews like they should be. They haven't followed the Old Testament Torah as closely as they should be. They've made compromises and so forth. And so this, this dispute between these two groups of Jews uh, comes right into the church. 
So these, you know, it's the same way with us today. <laughs> People come into our church and they bring their views with them, their cultural views, their views about everything. And so that can cause conflict even in the church today. Well, it did in the early church. These two groups who were in conflict, uh, you know, the Hellenistic Jews said, hey, you're neglecting our widows. And so what are the apostles going to do? And you remember, they decide we need some help. And they decide that they'll turn this task over of provide, you know, taking care of these widows and make sure their the food is distributed to them and so forth. Um, money is provided for them. It's difficult to know exactly what it says. Uh, we don't want to neglect the ministry of the word and wait on tables. That wait on tables may not be what you think it is. <clears throat> that is, it may not be a server at a restaurant. Uh, this phrase, wait on tables, is used twice in the New Testament. And both times it's used in connection with uh, people who are at tables distributing money, like in the temple, money changers, people like that. It may be that, uh, you know, the money that they have collected is distributed for the buying of food and so forth. And they put these financial matters in the hands of the people we call deacons here later. Um, and so they can, they say, we won't have to neglect the ministry of the word uh, in order to wait on these tables. And so they choose, they get the group. We will turn this responsibly over to them. And the, pro the proposal pleased the group and they chose Stephen and so forth. And that's the procedure we follow in our church too, congregational government, that is, we, the congregation chooses, votes on ultimately who will be the deacons in our church. And they choose these particular men to, uh, to carry on this ministry. All right, <clears throat> let's talk about now uh, the Sanhedrin for a moment. One of the features that we see in the New Testament, we've mentioned them several times. So uh, we're pretty familiar, I think. Uh, the Sanhedrin was the Supreme Jewish Council, the body which governed the Jews after the monarchy had been destroyed. The idea for the Sanhedrin is sometimes traced back to the 70 elders appointed to assist Moses during the Exodus. If you'll remember that um, situation there back in Numbers 11, Numbers 11, Moses says, hey, you know, it says, God, I'm overwhelmed here with these people. They're, they complain, they grumble. Uh, I'm just overwhelmed with this thing. And God says, okay, I want to get you some help. Choose 70 elders and I'm going to bring them into the tent and I'm going to put some of your spirit on them and they will uh, help you in governing and ruling over these people. So there, there's these elders who help Moses. We see elders again, we <clears throat> won't read the verses, but in Ezra, Ezra is clearly in charge. He's sort of the high priest and ruler, governor, um, but he also has these elders who work with him. The rulers of the Hasmonean dynasty, remember the Maccabean revolt, the Hasmonean, enlisted the support of experts in the interpretation of the law, including priests. This group developed in the Sanhedrin as we know it in the New Testament. So it's kind of a gradual thing, even from Moses, uh, then back into the uh, uh, period of Ezra after they return to the land. And then during the intertestamental period, you get sort of the full development of the Sanhedrin. Two, the Sanhedrin uh, consisted of 70 members plus the high priest, who was the president of the council. The membership of the Sanhedrin was drawn primarily from the priestly nobility. The Sadducees were in the majority and most influential. Remember, the priestly nobility would be the Levites, and they developed in sort, sort of a nobility uh, within that group. The Sadducees were in the majority and most influential. So the Sadducees were the majority of the Sanhedrin, as best we know, and they tend to be the most influential. But later, 
As Pharisees became increasingly popular among the people, <clears throat> they too were included in the number of the council. Excuse me. So the presence of the Pharisees, we see in the New Testament by references, remember to Nicodemus in John 3, who was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel, remember Paul's teacher we talked about in Acts 5, when the disciples are arrested. You know, he is the one who stands up in the Sanhedrin and says, uh, here's how we should go. Here's, how, here's what we should do. So even though the Pharisees were in the minority, they went with his uh, argumentation. They went with his advice. And they were often in conflict. We looked at that passage, I think, last time in Acts 23, where Paul is arrested, you remember, in the temple. And the Roman commander trying to understand what the situation is. Why is this man hated and being, why do they try to kill him? takes into the Sanhedrin and Paul mentions the resurrection of the dead. <laughs> and that starts a debate in the Sanhedrin between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and so forth. So there was always this conflict between them, even though they were both members of the Sanhedrin. Um, if Josephus talks about this in his writings and he says that in the first century, the Sanhedrin control, I mean, the Sadducees control the Sanhedrin, but he says they had to conform to the really the way the Pharisees wanted to run things because the people uh, were favorable to the Pharisees. Um, so you had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, and later you had scribes and elders are mentioned as part of the Sanhedrin. So elders uh, scribes, uh, uh, lawyers, as they're called, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, all part of the Sanhedrin. Number three, the Sanhedrin had authority over both religious and civil affairs. Remember, this goes back uh, to the time of Ezra and right through the Maccabean period. You remember when the the Maccabeans declared themselves to be high priest and king and so forth. So they had, they had religious duties and civil of, of duties. During the Roman period, the internal government of Palestine was largely in the hands of the Sanhedrin. And its authority was even uh, recognized in the diaspora. Remember these verses in Acts where Paul, uh, before his conversion, right before his conversion, it says in Acts 9, he went to the high priest in verse 2, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found any there who belonged to the way, he could take them prisoner back to Jerusalem. So here's the high priest, the Sanhedrin, exercising their authority outside, really, of Judea, uh, you know, of Israel. They're going to Damascus in Syria, which is not really under their control, but they're exercising authority. Paul says uh, later about his conversion, I persecuted the followers of this way, Christianity to their death, arresting both men and women, throw them in prison. As the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them and their associates in Damascus. And also in Acts 26, 11, he mentions that on verse 12, he went to Damascus with the full authority of the chief priest and the commission and so forth. So um, the Sanhedrin had this authority that ex and extended even outside of its uh, outside of uh, um, Israel. Uh, certainly, in matters of interpretation of religious law, it had the final say. The Sanhedrin supervised the established national religion, had oversight of the temple, and carried out such religious duties as fixing the date of the new moon, asserting that an extra month in the lunar calendar. Remember, they had to, every, one, every so many years, assert a new month in because they're only, they've only got um, 360 days a year in their lunar calendar. So you, you end up 
in you know in uh, in, uh, in, a, in six years you end up with a another month you need it had legislative duties as well as executive administrative and judiciary duties now uh, it had a lot of authority and as a law enforcement agency it had its own police force actually uh, that served as a kind of a court of law. Um, this is Acts chapter four. <clears throat> the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, because it was Eden, they put him in jail until the next day. Now, notice it says the priest and the captain of the temple guard. So the Sadducees, uh, the temple authorities, had their own police force. And it was run by who was a man who was called the captain of the temple guard. Now, in the New Testament, he was always the son of the high priest. So it's, you know, you keep this all in the family. We know, we know who these people are. We have their names. Uh, in fact, they're mentioned in Acts chapter 4 as it goes on there, a few verses. Uh, the high priest and then the captain of the temple guard is his son. And usually then he becomes the captain of the temple guard. When the high priest died, he becomes high priest. And so uh, they had their own police force, their own soldiers to really... Um, guard the temple area and maintain order and so forth like that. Um, here's an interesting passage about that, that I think we misunderstand a lot. This is uh, the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin really, coming to Pilate after the death, the crucifixion of Jesus after his burial and they say to Pilate, sir, they said, we remember that while he, that is Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. <clears throat> Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he is raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse <clears throat> than the first. And then in the NIV, it says this, take a guard. Now think about this phrase, because I'm going to come back to this phrase a moment. Take a guard. Now, I don't know what that means to you exactly. Take a guard, take some soldiers. The question is, whose soldiers are we talking about here? Take a guard, Pilate answered, Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, there's a clue here, another clue to who these soldiers might be uh, in the next chapter, Matthew 28. Uh, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened, you know, the problem is uh, the, there had been some guards there at the tomb, but Jesus had been raised and the women are coming, you know, to announce that. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, gave, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say, that is tell Pilate, tell those guys, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Hey, sorry, Pilate, you know, we fell asleep and the disciples came and they stole. If this report gets to the governor, you know, Pilate, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. Well, I think we commonly think that these soldiers are Roman soldiers, but that's probably not the case. And we've just been talking about how that the Sanhedrin had their own police force. They had their own soldiers. And this phrase back in 2765 here, take a guard. Um, 
me see if I have, I'm sorry, I'm going the wrong way. Uh, I guess I didn't, don't have it there. That phrase, uh, take a guard, can uh, be translated, you have a guard. Uh, I was going to put up uh, what some other translations have. I think I forgot to do that. The NIV says, take a guard, but most other translations say you have a guard. Uh, you say, how can that be? It's just a, just a phenomenon of the Greek language that the word that's used here, ekamen, uh, can be a statement or it can be a command. And you have to tell by context. Is it a command, take a guard, or is it a statement, you have a guard? Could be either one. The Greek won't tell you. You have to tell by context. And the context is a little difficult here. So as Pilate's saying, you know, get some soldiers. I mean, of course, he could be saying, get your own soldiers. The point is, I think we should probably translate this, you have a guard. Well, whatever the case is, I'm pretty convinced that these soldiers uh, are really um, soldier. They're really, uh, they're really uh, soldiers of the Sanhedrin. They're really the police force, the temple police force. And one reason I think we know this is what happens in chapter 28 there when they say, listen, here's what you do. You just say you fell asleep. Well, <laughs> that wouldn't work too well if you're a Roman soldier <laughs> and you tell the governor you fell asleep. You know, the penalty, <laughs> the penalty for that is pretty much death if you fall asleep <laughs> on guard. So it's not likely that these Roman soldiers would take money and say, we fell asleep. I mean, they, they do say we'll protect you, but I don't think there'd be a lot of protection. So it's more likely whether it means take a guard or whether it's you have a guard as the ESV or other translations had could be the one that we're talking about these soldiers we talked about that the Sanhedrin has that they control, that they go out and guard the temple, they fall asleep. And then, uh, you know, they, they pop the, the, the officials, the Sanhedrin comes up with this plan to say, okay, we fell asleep and, his, and they stole his uh, body away. Um, okay, we are, let's see, scribes, how much do we have here to talk about scribes? Well, maybe we should stop here. What time is it, 7.59? and uh, call it a night on that. And we will come back to scribes next time. Let me see if I can uh, get out of this.